This is Beyond Belief Sobriety, a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, and thank you for spending some of your time listening to our podcast. I hope it's a good experience for you and that it helps add a little something extra to your stockpile of recovery capital. My guest for this episode is Atel Light. She is a PhD candidate, best-selling author, motivator, and an expert in human communication. As the founder of SignShine, she helps parents improve communication with infants through sign language. My conversation with her focuses on her third book, Unaddicted to You, Loving Yourself Through the Darkness. It's a memoir and a great resource for people in recovery that I highly recommend. But before we get started, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategies for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery that you can find at Soberlink.com BBS. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention the Beyond Belief Sobriety podcast when ordering Soberlink and you'll receive $50 off their device. And now episode 269, Unaddicted to You with Atel Light. I begin the conversation by asking her to tell me a little bit about her work with Signshine. I really believe that healthy relationship starts with communication, healthy communication. I mean, it's not something that we learn when we're adults. It's something that we learn not even at childhood, but at babyhood. And most babies, when they're born, they're crying, just like adults, when they want something, right? The same thing. They whine, they complain. And I uh, put together this beautiful program who teaches babies how to communicate with their parents before even you know they start speaking and that's actually enhanced speaking healthy communication higher iq because these little babies who do not have the words yet which it's all muscles they don't have the muscles capacity to really speak they can tell the parent if they want you know if they're hungry or they diaper change or whatever it is and that established healthy communication just from the get go what um interested me in that is it wasn't that long ago i was watching a video that uh gabor mate put out and he was um talking about trauma and mm-hmm. you know a lot of people think about trauma as being you know very severe but it can lie on a spectrum but one of the examples he gave of trauma is being a baby crying mm-hmm. and your parents not coming It's really interesting that the baby is having a traumatic experience just trying to communicate with their parents. Exactly. And you know, the the previous generations, it was like, you know, you deal with your feelings. 
you know, like our generations, let's put it this way. For my work with parents, it's like you deal with your feelings and there is no, no place to speak even about feelings. What happens is to this generation, the new parents that I see, because I work usually with new parents, is they want to fix all feelings. So if the baby's crying or feel a little bit upset or sad, there is no space for that. So everything, you know, this when a mom holds the baby or the dad, like, Shh, it's okay, it's okay, but maybe it's not okay. So we have the two sides of really not attending to the feelings. For me, any feeling, you know, is there and we should acknowledge it. And we're going to talk about it later. It's we can talk about the feelings. What, what is the actions? What are the actions that we are taking upon these feelings? This is the healthy or not healthy conducting yourself after. Well, I just found it really interesting. I'd never heard of it before. And I thought that was a great, I think that's really a great work. 14 months old, before they can even speak, they can say, I'm sad. I'm frustrated. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, just even the difference between happy, excited, and I'm curious. So when you have this language in, you know, early age, what a beautiful opportunity it opens to this little baby who's going to be adult and is not going to be afraid of feelings. Most people are really afraid of feelings, no matter what it is. They're like, oh. Well, that's amazing. Okay. So your book, Unaddicted to You, Loving Yourself Through the Darkness, uh, chronicles your personal journey uh, through recovery. And that you're now like the second Al-Anon that I've talked to. And I've been sober and for a long time in AA for, for many decades, like 34 years now, crazy amount of time. But I haven't had a lot of experience with Al-Anon. And what I found interesting about your description of your process is that you were describing the your recovery as an addiction itself, that you were addicted to basically the relationship. And I just found that really, really interesting. Right. And, you know, it's it's not a substance. And that's the hardest thing, because I always say this thing. We are not pandas. Pandas are soul animals. You know, we are humans. We need other humans to to be in this planet. So avoiding being with people, this is really hard. You know, it's not like with substance or alcohol or gambling, which is like, you know, total, you know, abstinence. You need to relearn relationships with other people. And I can tell you from experience, many of Al-Anon members are actually, you know, AA or NA members. They call it the graduate program, right? Because in Al-Anon, you learn relationship not only with other people, but also with yourself. So it's it's a kind of a joke of being an addict to other people, but I, I was an addict to other people. For me, if someone was approving of me or not, that was my drug. If I can fix somebody or not, that was my drug. And there were, there's no of that. I literally felt the withdrawals the same way. I just had a session with a client who didn't have um, contact with her loved one. She loves him so much, but he is an alcoholic for four or five days. And she felt the same withdrawals as with a substance. Isn't that interesting? I can totally understand it. It reminded me sort of like almost an addiction to gambling in that you have the highs and the lows. You know, and I mean, gamblers will tell me that they're addicted to the highs and the lows. The roller coaster ride, as you described it, on a roller coaster with with a blindfold on. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. And it's funny, I don't like roller coaster, but apparently my life was a roller coaster. I want to tell you a little story that maybe can illustrate to our listeners what is really to be an addict to a person. 
So imagine a route that you take every day. It could be from your home to your car or from your car to the market or from your car to somewhere. And in this, you know, you take this every day. And one day you walk to your car, let's say, and there is an old lady sitting there. And you're like, hmm, interesting. She's like, hello. And she gives you a $50 bill. And you're like, no, thank you. Right? It's like, so weird. And she gives it to you. And, and you're like, no, no. She's like, no, it's for you. Okay. The next day you go, you know, your same route, you go into your car. Again, she's there with a the $50. And when you refuse, you're like, no, she's like, no, it's for you. Third day, she's there. Fourth day, your brain already knows that she's going to be there. Now, it's not even about the $50 because at first you're like, oh my God, I had $100 and $150. You kind of like contemplating, she's like, wow, she's going to be there, right? Fifth day, sixth day, seventh day, she's not there. The mind and the brain doesn't even think about the money. Now it's the trick if she's going to be there or not. And then the eighth day she's there, the ninth day she's not. And there is this mind game and this obsession of the mind if she's going to be there or not. And that's what happens to people who love addicts because what happens to addicts, alcohol, I'm just going to say addicts, which in research, uh, there is a different name. And they're like, you know, is it going to be available for me or not? It's walking on eggshells. Is, is it going to be, is it going to like me or not? What, what is it going to be today? Because someone with, you know, substance abuse usually is not that available emotionally. So then starts this game and then starts this, okay, I'm going to help them. So they're going to like me and love me so that I'm going to be accepted by them. And there's this vicious cycle, as you call it, how do you call it? A roller coaster with blindfold. But now we're playing really fit fire because it's with another person, right? So um, you grew up in, in Jerusalem. And the holy chick. I yeah, myself. the holy chick. <laughs> and I found yeah. that I loved reading about that to learn a little bit about that culture and your family dynamics, which I found really interesting. And what I found interesting, you wrote about the relationship between your mother and father. And yes. your father wasn't faithful to your mother. And so he had these affairs. Mm-hmm. And I may have misread it, but it seemed to me that your mother was more angry at the women then she was holding him responsible because the one time that you wrote about him, her confronting him, it was the woman that she was attacking. Exactly. Yes. Thank you for noticing it. Um, as I said, thank you so much for reading my book. My mom was obsessed with my dad, but her obsession was what is he doing? So the obsession was the other women. That's, you know, I, Today, as an adult, I know that this is my dad's addiction, you know, the attention from other women, because he did love my mom. Actually, I still think that he does love her, but he does. But it was the obsession for other women, just like people that love people with addiction, right? They start to have a project about the alcohol or, you know, the substance that they're using rather than the person. Yeah, I'm sure when you were a little girl and you were experiencing your family that it wasn't registering with you. But did you write about that? Because do you think that that impacted how you experienced relationships later on? Absolutely. I think that how we perceive relationship of our caregivers, which is our mom and dad, mom and mom, dad and dad, single parent. Uh, this is how we grow up because psychologically, now that I'm doing my research, there is this embedded need to fix it. Now, since we cannot go back in time and fix it, we attract this if we don't deal with this. And I didn't because I didn't know what it is. We attract the same phenomena into our life as adult. And the need to fix it 
is beyond words because the psyche thinks, okay, if I fix my relationship, it's almost as I went backwards and I fixed my parents. And that's why, you know, I'm sure you heard about it many times. People say, I don't want to be like, like my mom. I don't want to be like my dad. And guess what happens? Right. You become like them become like them and it's not on purpose it's not that something is quote-unquote defect or it's just that it's really the inner need to find a solution and resolution so i can tame my child who is thriving for solution because they're fighting i can talk about myself they're fighting she was chasing him he left he came back and again and again and nobody taught me any tools like what am i going to do with that so I found my Mr. Wonderful, whom I love and appreciate, by the way, my ex, you know, he's the dad of my kids, uh, but he has disease. And not knowing, I tried to fix him so I can feel really good about fixing what I saw. But how could someone explain it to me? Because at my home, I never saw, you know, alcohol or drugs. Actually, we never had alcohol or drugs or anything like that. Oh, boy, we had an addiction. Oh, boy. And later, when uh, when your parents did divorce, it was stigmatized. So it was like, don't talk about it. And so did it that carry on as part of making it more difficult for you to maybe think about need, getting help or getting out of the relationship even? Right. So thank you so much for, you know, bringing it up. I'm sure many of our listeners, they feel shame and embarrassment. You know, I'll talk about my mom, then myself, then a few clients. So my mom's shame about what happened at home was so immense that even after she got divorced, she never said it even to her parents. For five years, we had to lie that my mom is still married to our grandparents. I mean, how crazy is that? And I love the sentence that they say all the time, we're crazy as our secrets. I talk to my clients a lot and in my workshop, we are crazy as our secrets. You know, when I live my life clean and honest with myself, I don't have to put a sign, you know, outside. This is what, I, but honest with myself and with one person so I can feel accountable. I call it my side of the street is clean. So I don't have more secrets. My mom lived in secrets. I lived in secrets because what do I say? We had beautiful life. We still have two beautiful children. They were young at a time and life seemed to be very perfect. And his job is beautiful. I mean, why would I say like, he's an addict? It's a lot of shame. A lot of shame. My first meeting, and I'm sure you read it, was really, really far. I think I drove so far so nobody will notice and nobody will know who am I and what I am. And I was really embarrassed. And now here I go. I wrote a book about it. So, <laughs> you know, and I really want to empower any listener that is now listening and feel the shame and feel the embarrassment, and feel that they're alone. You are not alone. This is the story of many. Story of many. You don't have to feel this anyway. There are tools to help you to get out of it. A couple other other lessons I think I want to draw from your childhood too. Okay, so I really liked your mother. I love I loved I loved your mother because <laughs> I mean you were a brilliant student, all A's. Okay. But, and I'm sure she was proud of you, but, but, but she wanted everyone to see how, how good you were doing and how brilliant you were almost as if to show everyone what a great mother she was. You know, from a very young age, John, I learned to please other people because, you know, my mom went to really rough time and rough life from, you know, when I was 14, let's put it this way. When she was 34, she had six kids. 34. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With no 
She was very young. She's very young and she's very beautiful. She's really pretty. And she's a fighter. She's a lionist. But I knew that I wanted to make her so happy. So how did I make her happy? I, I was a highly gifted child. I actually went to a highly gifted high school and then they recruited me to the Israeli intelligence. But I brought her only A's, you know, and that's it. And she was really happy because it's the last thing that she needed to worry about. Like my sister, oh my God, she was always like, okay, you're the boring one. Let's go to your sisters. And I didn't want to be another hurdle in her life. So I learned to be a trophy and I learned to receive attention this way. You know, people please. And, you know, I'm like from a young age to read the temperature in the room. So nobody will be upset. I am not the reason that somebody is going to be upset. And what happens to people who do that, and I call it people pleasing, is lying to yourself. I'm going to re repeat it. People pleasing is lying to yourself. You learn to tame your feelings. You know, your, your feelings are not, I are ignored all the time by you. And just always attend to other people's feelings. And that's what I did in an older age. I kid you or not, John, on my ex-husband's birthday, I don't remember what birthday, I actually made a t-shirt and I wrote, his name in the book is Dan. So I wrote, you know, I wrote Dan's Trophy. Dan's Trophy. I mean, how crazy I am. <laughs> how crazy. That's how I wanted him to love me. I want to be perfect. One other thing I want to talk about your, that, that early part of the book that uh, this, 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 this made me cry, but it also was very inspiring. And this is, this is where I think that you drew on this later in life. And it was asking, it was about learning how to ask for help. And it was that moment when your mother was so excited, she's going to get her, have her kitchen remodeled. And it was a big, big deal. So she has this contractor come in to, and and he, um, he um, touches you inappropriately and it frightens you. It's disgusting. You're shocked. And he does it a second time, I think. But then you call this anonymous this number where they assure that you'll be anonymous and you ask for help. Yes. And what I found interesting about it, they told you what to do and you did it and it worked. I have goosebumps all over me. Oh, actually. yeah, I did too. Thank you. I know I'll tell you why. I had so many podcasts and radio talk shows and TV. And this is the first time that actually somebody asked me about it. So thank you. Um, I was contemplating for a long time if to put it, if it's part of my book or not. And I decided to put it because it will empower hopefully many. Yes, I was 14 and my parents just got divorced. And I knew that if I'm going to tell my mom that the savior, I mean, he was a friend of a family, touched me in an inappropriate way, that will crush her. No, she has enough. My dad left. I mean, she was in bed for months and months before the re big remodeling. And the remodeling was the shining, bright moment of her life. Finally, she can do something that she really wanted for such a long, for, this, for a long time. And for the listeners, I was driving in the bus to school. As I said, I was in highly gifted school. I had to take two buses, half an hour, every bus to school, to high school and back every day. And after that, clean the house, take care of my five siblings and clean government offices with my mom, because that's where we brought money home. I remember I didn't know what to do with him. I knew that it's disgusting and it's not right. Like I was 14, I was really naive and I knew that this is not right. And I saw a billboard and the billboard said hotline. And I memorized it because I was embarrassed that somebody in the bus will see that I'm even writing it. So entire time I memorized it. I memorized, I went to the bathroom. I wrote the phone number in a piece of paper. And back in the time, we didn't have cell phones. We had this like, the one phone, the dragging all the way to the room. And 
And I asked her what to do, shaking to my bones. And she said, and I wanted to repeat it to my listeners, because it's not only for asking for help, but it's having the courage to follow through. And she said, look at him in the eyes and say, you never come to my room. I mean, I'm petite. I know you can see that. I'm, I was a little girl. I'm still little. He was big. He came to my room. He entered. I looked at his eyes. And I think that this is the first time that I really prayed. Like really prayed. Not because my mom or dad told me. I really prayed. There are two kinds of prayer that I think that only two. There is help and thank you. That's it. And I prayed to have the courage. And I looked at his eyes and I said, do not come to my room ever again. And I, he never came back. He never came back. This is when I found my real strength, the voice that I didn't need anyone. Yeah. That I could talk for myself. And it's not that I wasn't afraid of him, but I found my voice. Mm-hmm. You know, so if anyone is listening, ask for help. It can be from a stranger. It can be from, I mean, stranger that has the tools to do it, right? It can be a good friend. Just ask for help. All it takes, it's like the first phone calls, phone call. It's like the heavy phone call, the heavy number, right? Sorry, the heavy um, phone. All it takes is this first step to really start seeing the shining light. Because what happens, you move from the shame, from the guilt into I'm asking help. Turns us from the victim. Some people love the victim mode. When I work in my clients, you know, I'm a toughie. Right. I mean, I'm really sweet. I have a dimple as many, like, as you can see, but I'm a toughie. So if you really want to work hard, you have to put the work in it. So ask for help, you know, victim mode, tame it down, ask for help. And I think a lot of what you wrote about is, is really about empowerment, becoming empowered to, to make changes. And I wonder if we can just go ahead and talk about your addiction now um, and your relationship with Dan. And if you can describe how his addiction impacted you, just kind of go through that story, what you learned from it and how you would have people in that situation right. overcome something like that. Right. Because many of our listeners, even though that they're dealing with addiction, usually they magnet other people with addiction. So it's not only someone without addiction like I am. I mean, I did that are magnetizing someone with um, addiction or alcoholism. So when I met Dan, in the book, right? Um, I remember that. He said that he has a secret to tell me. I kid you not, John, I was ready. I was like, he's going to tell me his secret. So I'm an important person to him, right? It was like so exciting, you know, charming and amazing. And he said, I'm in AA. Oh, wow. And him and his puzzle. I, I mean, it was a third date. And I looked at him and I said, I didn't know what AA is. I'm like, he's not a pilot in American Airlines. <laughs> not a member of you know triple a i'm like what is aa and he told me what it is and i was really puzzled what aa means what does it mean i mean you know we all drank a little bit or do something a little bit and we told me about his story i was shocked um he was actually in so- just ending sober living when i met him and i thought okay he looks nice he has a great job i mean not i mean i really didn't know what it means it's just so clueless and we were married and you know i mean we, we dated and we got married and he swiped me on my feet and we had a first child. And then the first relapse happened and I thought we can do it. And listen to me, John, I said, we can do it because I took his disease as if it would be mine. 
right? And I was addicted into he's getting better. Everything is okay. He's not better and I'm freaking out. And then after a few relapses, it's also the, is he using or not? I know he's using. And then what happens, you start to play with your intuition. You don't trust yourself. You know, people who are with other people that have, you know, other women, gambling, alcohol, they start, they stop trusting even themselves because there are big trust issues. So I used to look for things, right? And unlike alcohol, you can't really look for bottles. There is no scent. There is no, I know some clients who actually take the bottle and, and, and open the smell, or they put lines to measure it, crazy stuff, crazy things. But I looked for pills and I did it very systematically. You know, I looked all over. He's very tall. I'm short. I used to take a ladder, go in the house. When I realized it's not in the house one day, I'm like, hmm, it's in the car. So I started searching the car every morning, you know, put my clothes at 5 a.m. and search the car, like right side, left side, until one day I found it. And even when I found it, I was even embarrassed and ashamed to even tell him that. So that was my cycle. It was almost like I was chasing that. I was chasing him to make him feel better so I can feel better. And that's the unhealthy chasing. I wanted to feel good by soothing his addiction, which is crazy making. And you also wrote about, um, you know, I hear people talk about drama all the time. And it's usually like, I hate drama. I don't have drama in my life. Mm. Drama's bad. <laughs> but, and I, and I, yeah, I can see that. I do like drama in other people's life and kind of watching that. <laughs> but yeah. you wrote something about drama and about how addictive it is. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Right. So I'm just kind of like one to people understand how the book is constructed. So it is 21 chapters and every chapter has three roots because it's the, you know, driven from Hebrew. I uh, speak and write different languages with, with different fonts. And in the end, there is a story. And in the end of each story, there is, uh, oops, there is um, uh, kind of like an anecdote. For example, this is what's hysterical, he's historical, right? So it's story and then tools for everyone. So drama, right? What happens is the addiction really wants you to come inside, I call it the gorilla cage, and dance with her. That's what the addiction does. It's not the addict. The addiction loves the drama, loves the passion, loves it because then there is somebody else to blame and then I can use, right? Because if there is drama or I feel sad or angry or chaotic or even excited, right? I can take the substance or gamble and then soothe myself. So what happens to a person who lives with this? They just voluntarily go to the cage. That's it. I'm in. He's fighting with me. I'm in. So it's not about liking or not liking the drama it's about again i will go exactly what we talked in the beginning it's about the feelings i have feelings which are not you know like you know the ordinary feelings and i don't know what to do with them so i'm going to create a big drama because what do i do with these feelings right one tool that i can give to non-drama life is non-triangles right? I'm, as I said, we're a family of six. I'm the oldest of six. So we had a lot of she said, and he said, and this sister said, and you know, it's a lot of like, even when I was married, it's he said. And today I don't have triangles. If I want to tell someone something, I just go to the person. If my sister calls me and she said, you know, you have to talk to sister number one or dash. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. If you want, you can do it. And that takes again, courage, but my life is easier right now. 
No, and also with my workshop, I it's it's a whole new thing how to set healthy boundaries and not create triangles. You know, people are afraid of boundaries. They imagine a big, big soldier coming and yelling at them or you know, something frightening. But boundaries is such a beautiful thing. You know, boundaries is self-respect. It's like I love myself. So I just have a workshop of like how to set healthy boundaries. That I think is something that people that are in recovery for a long period of time eventually have to deal with. I mean, you get your life back and and you get a lot of activities in, in my case. And where I find I have a problem setting boundaries is not saying no and finding myself way overcommitted in a lot of a lot of different areas and it causes a lot of chaos eventually. Right. So I'm not going to give the entire workshop here. <laughs> I just actually recorded it and it's going to be on my website very soon. But uh, yeah, first of all, let's start with no is a complete sentence, you know? And the second thing is like, I would even, you know, start pondering why boundary is scary to to that person. No, because boundary always comes with something, you know, the connotation is that it's something harsh, something that maybe people would not love me. It's the need of people pleasing. And as I said, people pleasing equals lying to myself. There's so much that is going with setting healthy boundaries. Okay. So until now, the people who would like to set boundaries, people yelled at him or didn't accept it. And it's okay if somebody didn't, you know, accept your boundary, right? Just yesterday, I had someone have a, you know, a phone call with me because sometimes I do phone calls in between meetings and he was really, and I have men too, he was really upset at his girlfriend because she went out of the States and he asked her to give him a call when she lands there. So here we go. There is a need. I stated my need. My need is please call me when I, when you land there. Did she call him? No, she was busy. And then he's like, you know, I don't know what to do with it. And I said, this is exactly it. You set the boundary. Now, how do we do it? Right? So I love the say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it mean. And I call it, you know, I'm sorry for my French uh, listener, the shit sandwich. So you just come and yell it. You start with the things you appreciate about the person. What is the need that you would like to be met or, you know, the behavior that is not going to be done? And how, what are you going to do if it's not going to be done? Because this is the thing. And I'm just going to finish with that. A boundary is not to the other person. A boundary is always to myself. Always. And when I start to set healthy boundaries, I start to really appreciate myself. So it's appreciate my time, appreciate my energy, appreciate who am I. And this is when really self-love, you know, everybody thrown out on social media, self-love. But how do you do it? What do you go to the mirror and say, I love myself? No, it's by really setting healthy boundaries with other people. And now this is when they end. And this is when I start. Many people that love addicts don't know when they, other person ends, I start. It's all like emotional feelings. We all, we, no, you know, it's you start. You, you end and I start. This is my zone. It's my safe zone, right? Yes. So why don't we talk a little bit about what you are doing now, if we could. You, you, you wrote about your, um, your first, when you went to your Al-Anon, and there was a woman there who became your mentor, I think. It was your mentor. And she accompanied you to some really difficult times, uh, like your divorce court and so forth. And she said that, I'm not going to I'm not going to get involved in what's going on there but I'm just going to be with you. And 
you've, you've got that experience with her, but then you're also studying psychology yourself. So, I mean, you, you've learned a lot. I, I just wonder where, how you developed your, your, your way of helping people as a coach or as a mentor, where that came from and how you do it. Right. So before that, I'm going to go step uh, backward. I, I, as I said, I was really embarrassed. I had my first sponsor when I went to Al-Anon meeting and I think that she's Lois's friend. I mean, really, she was so old and I, was afraid. She said, call me. And I thought, what does she want from me? Immediately. I thought that she wants something from me. Then things led up and I had my second sponsor because my first one cannot do it anymore. And she's in the book. Her name is Ronnie. She's this, this humble, beautiful, gorgeous woman. And I wanted what she had. I wanted what she has. And I just called her and I was very vulnerable with her. And she always told me, you know, even after the divorce, you will have another set of problems. And I said, I'm I'm not ever going to have problems, right? And that's what happens. And that really empowered me, John, because I was really in the lowest of the low. If anyone is listening and you're in the dark and you don't know what to do, I want you to know one thing. You're in the dark, the darkness, so you can find the light. You cannot find the light if you are in a lit room. There is no change. People don't change because it's comfortable. And I need a change for my life. The issue wasn't my ex-husband. It was my life altogether because I, I would keep magnetizing people like that. And that's my, I'm so empowered to do my PhD. Actually, my PhD, my research is about Al-Anon and trust and help other people who are in the same situation. The buzzword now I know is addiction, but hey, Addiction is not a one person disease. It's a family. They call it actually a family disease. It's peel on everyone around the addict. You know, what she gave me, I wanted to give to others. So whoever is listening, maybe you're in the dark now and you will find help. Or if people are listening and they already found the light, be in service, help others. It takes only one person to help. And then this person is going to help another person, you know, and then really, I mean, this is what they say about our world. I mean, it's a cliche. We'll look better and happier, but only serve one person. It's like a domino. So that was my inspiration from her and from my work in life. And I'm looking forward. Can you tell me what positive psychology is? Mm, Okay. So positive psychology is actually, I mean, many people know it as the tools. It's finding tools that are actually doing positive action in order to deal with the trauma, the chaos, the feeling, whatever it is. For example, gratitude. Gratitude is a tool of positive psychology. Now, I even take it a notch higher because people think that gratitude is like, I'm asking any person, they would say, I'm grateful for my home. I'm gra- grateful for my children. I'm grateful for you know my job. I'm like, this is not deep enough because if I'm really grateful, I'm grateful for myself of doing the action that showed to me that I am emotionally mature in this life, right? Everybody, you know, in my work, I give assignments with my clients. Everybody needs to do something else. So gratitude is one of them. I'm working on God's box. I don't know if you know what God box is. Yes, I've heard of it. You, in your problems, you put it in the box. Exactly. Or your worries or your obsessions, you put it in God's box. And it doesn't have to be called God, it could be word God, universe God. And this is a way to actually develop the muscle of trust. Because if I am in bed and thinking and overthinking and overdigesting the same problem again and again and again, it's not, not only it's not going to solve itself, I'm hurting myself, but it's another tool that I'm going to use to do trust. So this is positive psychology, like turning the action into positive action in, to help you with a trauma and 
you know, the victimhood or is the obsession, the fears, right? Well, you've got quite you've got quite a thing going here. Um, I don't know how you do all of this. <laughs> but um, I really I really did enjoy your book. I would recommend it highly to anybody. Um, and as you said, there are tools throughout that book. You know, you describe experiences and sometimes you jump around, you know, from one period of your life to another period of life. But you, it's all kind of woven together. And it's just a beautiful story. It's so honest and real. And and you're so open. I just think it took a lot of courage to put yourself out there like that. Absolutely. You know, it's my work now is not for me. No, actually, my book was hidden in the drawer for two years, even more. I did it. I was I wrote it while I got divorced, just wrote a book in six months and I put it in the drawer. I was really afraid that even someone will find it. And then after the divorce, after I healed, like, like slowly, but I healed. I decided to publish it. It's my third book. I talked about relationship with parents and children. I wrote a children's book, which is actually a series of five uh, books, uh, Mommy and Daddy, as I said, Mommy and uh, Mama, Daddy and Papa, Single Mom, Single Dad. I thought it's time. It's time to be honest. It's releasing. There is the phrase, the the, uh, wounded healer right? It's, you know, the wounded healer wants to heal other people. And I feel that's my mission in life. The more I spread the word, the more people come to me and say, please help me, you know, please help me. So when I work with you, when I warn you, it's going to be amazing process, but also you're, you're going to work. The most important thing to anyone's life, it's them. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time to be be with me here uh, on, on our podcast. And I loved your book. I'm going to recommend it to my uh, listeners for sure. And I, also my mother-in-law, who's an Al-Anon, uh, for her to read it as well. <laughs> thank you so much, John. And I just, you know, as we talked about being service for others, and I do it in every podcast. So in every podcast, the three first people who will contact me so they can do it through the website or through DM of my Instagram, it's at a light. Everything is at a light. Uh, three people who will dm me i'll give them a free tool nice for some people they're embarrassed but i'm opening my door i'll give them one tool to to deal with what they're going now and you never know it's you know how it will help them thank you that's very nice of you so thank you so much it's it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much i appreciate you and being in this podcast That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.